Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. Today, we are going to take a look at Bring Change to Mind, otherwise known as BC2M, which is one of the two peer-to-peer evidence-based mental health programs we recommend to schools. We'll talk with Leanne Lochran, National Program Manager at BC2M. Leanne, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Kayla. So nice to have you here. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about BC2M and how it got started? Sure. So Bring Change to Mind, we are a national mental health awareness organization. We primarily focus on the stigma that surrounds mental illness Um, And also just encouraging people to start the conversation that surrounds these topics. Um, The organization was founded by award-winning actress, Glenn Close. um, And that really stemmed from her family's connection to mental illness. Her sister, Jessie, lives with bipolar disorder and her nephew, Keelan, lives with schizophrenia. Um, And really, Jessie was the one that sparked that advocacy path for Glenn. So Jessie had lived with bipolar disorder um, for, for her whole life, but didn't actually get diagnosed until she was 50. Um, and that stemmed from her having to go to Glenn to say, hey, I'm really, really struggling right now. I am hearing these voices that are telling me to kill myself. And this was just honestly, like, I think really hit Glenn to the point that, that this was her sister who she cared so much about, but never knew it was going on to this degree and that it was hurting her that much. So obviously Glenn helped her get the help that she needed, but then it it really became this family discussion to figure out how they could use their voice and their platform to really bring this to a societal conversation or a national conversation um, where we can all talk about mental health in a way that's not embarrassing or something we should be ashamed about. And, And that's really where it all began, really with this hope that we don't shy away from mental health and we really take it on and realize the importance of talking about it. And um, so that was, again, from that in 2010, the organization started, it launched officially with our first public service announcement. Um, and yeah, so ever since then, it's grown over the past 10 years to become what it is now. So it's been a pretty great journey. So how many regions of the country are you working in now? We are currently operating in seven regional hubs. We are in Northern California, in the wider Bay Area, Southern California, Arizona, Indiana, Cincinnati, Columbus, and the New York tri-state area. And this fall, we will also grow to work with um, more rural counties within Central California. And that's something we're really excited about because these are countries that don't have the resources that many of us would have in in more urban areas, like here in the Bay Area. Um, So that's something we're excited about. 
That's awesome. You guys have grown uh, quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to work with Cincinnati? We, there was a lot of back and forth. It's all coming back to me now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When we started in the Bay Area, we we were very adamant that we wanted to make sure it was perfected there, like to the best of our ability. We wanted to make sure that the program was effective. It was having the impact that we were promising to people. And only once we completed our research with UC Berkeley, um, looking at how the club impacted student attitudes, knowledge, social distance behaviors, did we start to feel in any way comfortable that we could actually bring this further afield into new communities? And yeah, like once Nancy and I got in contact um, and I learned more about one in five, all that you do and, and how you're interwoven into so many networks there in Cincinnati, we were like, this is the most perfect opportunity for us to test this outside of the Bay Area. And for me, it definitely was my baby. You know, I was the first person to work on the program. So I was so nervous to to some degree put it in somebody else's hands with their assistance. And it, it honestly, we still describe it as the gold standard in terms of partnerships. Because one in five, you guys were able to introduce us, um, you know, in this collective gathering to so many school representatives, to students, just to tell them about this work and this program and that it's available to them immediately for free. Uh, and that just opened the doors for us. Like, I think it just made recruitment, um, you know, quote unquote, very easy. Just that information was shared so quickly. They jumped on it. We got responses from the student, from the schools immediately to say that they wanted to start a club and it's just grown from there. I think having that dual support from national headquarters with all of the resources that we offer, but then having that on the ground community support with an organization that they know and respect just was the perfect marriage. And I think that's why our clubs in Cincinnati have been so successful. Um, and it continues to be the model that we always discuss with new community partners in our new region. So, so yes, you have set the gold standard and it's something we always refer to when we, when we go to new areas. That's good to hear. Yeah. We like to hear that. That's not even for the podcast purpose. This is legit. So just, just so you know. Um, you were talking about kind of how when this all started, this, uh, this was kind of your baby. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about your role kind of as the national program manager and like what you do and especially now after it's expanded so much? Yeah, what has happened? So I'm with Bring Change to Mind oof, over five years now. And my role, what I do has evolved so much since day one. Um, I had just graduated from my master's in public health just a couple of months, actually, when I took on this role. And I was presented with this idea of what this high school program could look like. Um, but of course, in any new job, you're like, yeah, no problem. But honestly, I had to go back to my desk and be like, what are we, what is this going to look like? I don't have the answers. I'm sorry. I'm not a teenager in high school. Um, and I think that sort of then answered the question for me. I need to go and speak to these teens. So when I first started in the role, it really was working with students in the communities that we were going to roll out to or that we hope to roll out to. Um, to figure out like what they wanted, like what were they willing to discuss? Did they want to take trainings? Did they want curriculum? Honestly, we didn't know. But the good thing with Bring Change to Mind is that we were very open just to taking on their feedback and, and what they wanted. And we were going to adapt to accommodate that. But um, yeah, like once we decided that this club model 
was something we were interested in. The kids jumped on it. They just were like, this will work with our schedule. It can be implemented on any campus. There's a social aspect. So it, again, given that stigma is such a central part of what we do, um, it's not a curriculum that's being talked down to kids. Like they actually get to talk about this in social in a social context with their peers through this club format. Um, and they obviously loved all the resources we were going to provide. So it was, there was a fun aspect as well, you know, and yeah, really they came together to help us figure out what the structure would look like, what resources would be most beneficial. And so once I had worked with our students, you know, our pilot of students to figure out what we were going to move forward with, then it became, okay, we need to get schools on board to actually test this out. And that was I've never done door-to-door sales, but this was probably the closest I've ever came to it because we were going to schools initially it was like not even a presentation or a handout just to discuss what this might look like, how their students would engage with the topic of mental health awareness and how it would roll out. And some schools, I have to give them their credit. They were the first to put their hands up and say, yeah, we'll test this out. Um, it's not yet proven, but we'll give it a go and we'll support this because it's important to us you know, at our school and within our community. Um, but definitely we've seen things shift because in year one, we did still get a lot of pushback from some schools to say, direct quote from principal, sorry, our students don't have any mental health issues, which... Well, that's not true. We all know that. Um, so there is serious denial and just, you know, palpable stigma with some of these principles that we were having initial conversations with. Um, so, yeah, that we got 25 schools um, on board year one. They worked with the team from UC Berkeley to also conduct research as they rolled out this um, the club, the club, sorry, on their campus. And then in year two, we grew to, we grew to 50 schools. And that's, again, when I was just working to onboard new schools, fine-tune the program, what resources were provided, constantly working on evaluation to figure out what was working, what could be improved. Um, and then as we've grown, we, we've started to bring on more staff to accommodate these regions that we're working in. So my role has shifted more to organizational strategy with our executive director, Pamela Harrington, um, figuring out across the regions, how we have to tweak resources to make sure we're meeting the community needs of those that we work with. So obviously New York, for example, is going to have very different issues to maybe what our kids in Indiana are experiencing or there in Cincinnati. And we're very conscious of that. And that's why the program has evolved to, to make sure that we are constantly assessing what is going on with our kids and making sure that we making sure that we're meeting them in the, in the best way possible. So so now I oversee our seven regional managers um, and I work with them just to set goals and the plan for the year for their region. So, um, and yeah, I just keep a track of that and help support them in every way possible and, you know, help secure funding where possible. That's always an ongoing battle with any nonprofit, but that's how my role has evolved quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, yes, yeah, so you've, you've, uh, you've had a lot of change. Yeah. <laughs> It's never boring. It's a lot of other things, but it's not boring. (laughs) Yes. So you talked a little bit about the regional managers. Can you tell us how they work with the schools? Yeah. So our regional managers are, are key. We, again, when we started out in the Bay Area, the feedback that we were getting from the people, the schools, students that we were working with was that they loved that we provided this high touch model 
And what I mean by that is that we weren't just sending students and advisors to a website and saying, hey, go ahead, check out that website, touch base with you in a year. Like that wasn't our model. We knew that they were benefiting more from us being on the ground, working with them to figure out, okay, your school's really interested in sports. Let's do more mental health awareness sporting events. Your school's really interested in drama and more creative projects. Let's do X, Y, and Z to, so that we can, again, provide something that's of interest to your community. And so we really were there as an additional support in addition to the faculty advisor that supported the club. And, and that was huge. Um, the regional managers do that on a year-round basis. They also are responsible for hosting events that we do in each of our regions. So in the Bay Area, we have our huge flagship summit with over 400 kids coming in from all over the Bay Area. Um, we've done one in Columbus. So we had some Saturday kids join us for that. Um, and across all of our regions, we've had student meetups because we don't want them to think that the work that they're doing on their campus is happening in a vacuum. You know, sometimes they're doing all of this work. They're so eager. They're so pumped. Um, but do, some might feel that it stops there if we didn't give them this, this extra connection to students, you know, within their community that are doing this work. So that's why our, our meetups are so important so that they feel and see that they're part of this larger movement because our kids are just the most amazing advocates ever. They have such a drive that I'm still trying to find in my thirties, Never mind in my teens. Um, that it blows me away. And I think to have them come together and motivate each other further is, is just why this program and the movement continues to grow um, just to the degree that we're seeing. So they also do that. And then they're also responsible for our evaluation. So we conduct spring semester evaluations with our clubs, really deep diving into, again, what's working, what's not, what is the level of awareness of the program on campus? How can we improve that if that's low? Do they think that it's having the positive impact that we hope to see? So we're always taking in that information and use information and using the summer period to, to tweak and again, refine the work that we do because it's constantly evolving. You know, this is never just going to stay stagnant, like what they want and what they need. So um, that's just another huge part of their role. So, so they're pretty busy throughout the year, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, I, I bet. I know what it's like working with uh, with different organizations, The all the moving pieces that you're trying to juggle. Yeah, it's like nonprofit life, you know, lots of happening. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Maintaining those relationships and everything. And like you were saying, working to adapt and just improve all over um, or overall, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, and it, it sounds like Bring Change to Mind does such an amazing job of spreading awareness across campuses, like you were saying. Um, But like, what other ways is the program working to break down the stigma surrounding mental health? The organization initially really focused its work on starting national conversations through public service announcements. So our PSAs, they, you know, our first one was with Glenn, um, directed by Ron Howard, and it was in Grand Central Station. It was the most amazing thing. And um, what you've seen were people coming together wearing these shirts with a diagnosis. Um, you might have somebody else in a shirt saying sister, friend, partner, to show that, just to have that visual image of how we all connect to mental illness in one way or another. It was so powerful. 
it has been seen by billions of people, so many impressions. It like that still takes my breath away when I watch that PSA and then continue to evolve. So we've realized, you know, obviously national conversations, that's so great. We need to have those, but we also need to deep dive into more specific demographics and those that are maybe having a harder time or typically aren't more vocal about, you know, just engaging with mental health conversations. So men in particular, you know, I think we know that men just men and mental health, it's been a very tricky subject for so long. I think just the stigma, the fact that they think it's, it makes them look weak um, or that it's a character flaw and men in particular have just historically struggled with that and being open with their experiences. So that is one campaign that we've done. But more recently, we have evolved to align with our youth-based programs. So we have done a number now of teen-focused PSAs, showing them that, again, reminding them that we all connect to mental health in one way or another, that this is something they should be encouraged to talk about, should not be ashamed to talk about. Um, And they've been really effective. And I think through this power of social media, for good and for bad, um, we can reach so many people in that way. Like our program is on the ground working with students directly, but to have that more blanket reach through the public service announcements, that's just a huge benefit for us. And then in social media, via social media, we also share um, like a ton of information uh, about the work that we do, resources that we um, encourage people to check out. Uh, and community partners as well. So it's uh, it. I, I we totally agree with you. The stigma reduction piece is the piece that um, we we work on nonstop as well. Um, just getting people. We talk about normalizing that conversation as much as we totally as we can out there. And we're with you that we think the youth is going to change this conversation faster than the adult population. So we we constantly work with them. We tell them to use their voice. Get, in, get involved. And that sort of leads us to, I know that you've created um, the Teen Advisory Board. Can you tell us what their role is um, and what that looks like for you? Yeah. So we had, a, again, when the program started, we had a very informal Teen Advisory Board. So students that we were working with to tell us if we're going in the right direction or wrong. Um, and we've definitely formalized that process. So in California, we launched our first Teen Advisory Board. So we select 20 students every year to take on these leadership roles. Um, It's a commitment of participating in calls twice per month to help us review materials that we're creating, partnerships that we're pursuing, to give feedback on even our new PSA. Is this something that they would watch or share via social media? And they, oh my goodness, I don't know what we would do without our teen advisory board. They... And we have such a great relationship with them that they can tell us if we're going in the wrong direction, they are like, what are you doing? That is horrendous. Stop. Um, And that's great. Like that's the feedback we need because if we go six months into a project that is something that's not going to resonate with our, you know, our audience, what's the point? So it is crucial that we're in constant communication with them to the extent that we have our California teen advisory board, But as we discussed earlier, like our regions are so different that we have now launched leadership councils. Um, So it's a little bit less formal. So they meet once a month um, and the leadership councils operate within our newer regions. So when we start, um, for example, in Arizona, we just launched there last year. 
to help us get us off the ground and again make sure we're we're going down the right path with how we're implementing the program in that area we always defer to our leadership council there in a new region um, and as they move into year two they become a teen advisory board which again increases in the number of students that participate and the degree to which they communicate with um, staff in the area so we will be rolling out official teen advisory boards within um, all of our regions eight regions this fall and and it's it, again it's key it's key that we're doing this with them because otherwise you know you have a bunch of people in their you know 20 30 40 plus trying to figure this out and that's that's it just doesn't make sense, you know? So um, yes, they are our guides. We always refer to ourselves as our teen advisory board employees because we just do what they tell us to do, which, which works and it's proven to work. And that's why we've grown so much. So they're pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, they, teens like know what's up right now. And I feel, I feel like old compared to teenagers and I'm only 23. Like, Seriously, like I, every time we sit down with some of them, we're like, I would never have had that level of maturity, insight, confidence to speak mm-hmm. about this subject. But like for me, you know, so my mom was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 12. And in Ireland, you start high school um, from 13 onwards. So it's a little bit of a different schedule. But for me, like with the hospitalizations, um, suicide attempts, like, never in a million years would I have dreamed to have those conversations with those conversations with my friends or my teachers school wide not a hope it just that confidence that knowledge of what it involved what it was about how many other people connected with the issue was just something that probably took me back years in in terms of like how I could engage in conversations around mental health so to see these kids step up and they will happily take the mic and they will tell parents, grandparents, whoever will listen, why it's important that they step up, engage and talk openly about this subject is so inspiring to me because I just feel like I really hope there's less of those kids that were in my situation where they felt very well, alone, basically alone and, and, you know, just afraid to out yourself that this was something that was going on within your family. And these kids are benefiting benefiting so much from from talking to others about their connection again whether it's their own diagnosis a friend or a family member and just seeing that this is much more prevalent than they might have ever realized so it, it just gives me such hope and such energy and I think that's what drives us as an organization to see that we're having the impact that we want it to have and that these kids are just in a much better place than where they might have been if this wasn't provided to them um and it's not just us i clearly we're working with such great partners that it is a collective effort like what we do is very much on the preventative conversation starting piece but we also need the other people in the community to come together to offer trainings to offer school support Um, and that's why again one in five have just been stellar to work with and yeah, I think that's always what we're trying to to do in every region that we operate in. That's amazing. And thank you for sharing that story. I know that's, that's, uh, it can be hard to talk about, but I mean, it's just so important to keep like having these conversations, like you're saying, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what's going to move forward. So I know I'll, I love it. Somebody told me like, um, 
shame loves secrets. And I've never heard a phrase like hit so deep. I was like, that's so true. Because the longer you try and keep it hidden from people and, you know, skirt around the issue, or if somebody brings it up, you're the first one to step away from it. It That builds up on you, especially over time. Um, and yeah, I just think the release that these kids get, even I get now in just being so open with it because um, it makes me feel lighter. I think it gives space for people to also share their story. Like that is, that's the funniest thing. Ever since I started working at Brain Change to Mind, once I tell people what I do, there's basically a line that want to put their hand up and say, oh my goodness, where are you here? And I'm like, are you serious? This never would have came up in conversation if they didn't know. And some people are much more vocal about it. Others will definitely say it in hushed tones. But I think they're just so relieved to know that there's space for them just to share, you know, what their connection is. And and I love that, you know, even if we don't deep dive and it's not a, you know, one hour therapy session, it's still space for them just to get that off their shoulders and say it out loud. Like that just, I don't know, there's such satisfaction to doing that. So, so yeah, not even with teens, with every single age group, if you give that space, you will have somebody step into it and say, I want to talk about this, which is pretty great. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's the beautiful thing. And I think we all experience that because I think we're all very open to having the conversation. Um, and it's amazing how many people will come up to you and say, let me, let me tell you my story. And thank you for, thank you for sharing yours. And it's a very powerful yeah. thing. And myself just now, I could be, you know, write me off my grocery list and I'm like do you know I work for a mental health organization because I feel like <laughs> honestly like, that's how you actually really develop relationships with people like even friends associates of mine you know people I've known but maybe not really connected with and then same thing we could be at an event whatever and if this topic comes up all of a sudden I know all of the skeletons in their closet about their family <laughs> or they've never told anybody. And it's like, it's this deep connection then that you're never going to break. And yeah, there's a group of us within our, like our workout group that, um, yeah, we're just always, any chance we get now, we're like, who's your mental health? Like we're so open about like it honestly is part of like everyday conversation. But um, again, how that has changed over my lifetime, even again, when I mentioned about our principles that had that feedback that, our students don't don't have mental illness to now where we have a wait list of 180 kids or sorry 180 schools how that has changed because I think there's peer pre- there's good peer pressure and there's bad peer pressure so the good peer pressure is that these schools are seeing other people step up other administrators saying that I am prioritizing student mental health on my campus I am bringing on this program another program So that other school that maybe is trying to deny anything going on or just turn a blind eye, like parents pay attention to that. And I think that peer pressure among schools now is that you have to step up. The bar has been raised. You cannot just ignore what is going on on every single campus. I don't care where you are, who you are. Um, And that's the good thing. I think we're seeing this demand across the board for everybody to step up and make sure that they're, they're working preventatively, not just in in a reactive way, you can't just put a band-aid when students, you know, on a student crisis anymore. Like you really have to be thinking just ahead as to how you're going to prevent um, and, you know, intervene in, in an earlier manner for sure. So going in the right direction. 
there's like a wait list, which is awesome because a few years ago there was all this like pushback, but now people are waiting to get in. (laughs) Um, So if someone wanted to start a bring change to mind club at their school, um, how, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So our wait list is, that's a tough situation. So we are recruiting within our regions, but the wait list is currently made up of students that want to bring a club to their campus outside of the regions in which we're currently working. Um, and, and I can explain that. So we are, so if you're in Cincinnati, in Columbus, again, New York State, tri, um, sorry, New York tri-state area, any of the other regions that I mentioned, um, you can start a club right now. You can contact info at bringchangetomind.org. However, the reason why we have a waitlist is because we, again, are really committed to maintaining this high-touch model. We have our regional managers there to support schools that are within driving distance for them. We want to be there in person to support you. And yeah, so, but we are really trying to work on that. Um, But we do hope that we can onboard many more schools in Ohio. So I hope people there are listening and are excited and hopefully want to start a club. Um, And again, you get to work with both Brain Change to Mind and One in Five, which is the extra benefit. So Liam, thank you for being with us today. We loved learning more about how you came to have this position with Bring Change to Mind and how that that, uh, role has evolved and how a one in five got involved with you. And we've continued to grow the program here in Cincinnati. And we look forward to growing it more as we move forward. Yay. We are extremely excited and thankful for you guys. So yeah, you're not getting rid of us anytime soon. (laughs) Put it like that. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we are changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time.